Welcome to the Profitable Steward Podcast with Jared Sorensen. In this series, we'll learn and explore regenerative agriculture principles. Through practices that improve soil health, animal health, and good stewardship, we are working to help you increase your productivity and profitability. Join us in learning from successful farm and ranch experts who share stories of growth from their fields to help your fields grow strong. Here is your host, Jared Sorensen. Um, welcome, everyone. This is the uh, Profitable Regeneration webinar series, and it's also being repurposed as the um, Profitable Steward podcast. We're we're grateful to have many of you here live today. Um, we do these things live on the second Thursday and fourth Thursday of each month, and we're going to try to keep that cadence up throughout this coming year. Um, we've had some, some good things, good results from this. Um, we are just... Uh, on the backside of a pretty awesome summit. And we had some amazing speakers last week on our virtual summit. Um, if you haven't been able to check that out, I'll, I'll drop a link um, here for those that are live and in the show notes on the podcast. And I also want to make you aware that that is um, available for free to be able to go back and rewatch. Uh, it's on a, it's on our YouTube channel. Um, we are going to be pulling that offer down uh, probably tomorrow and you'll have lifetime access and we'll talk a little bit more about how to be able to get that and, and also register for an upcoming class that we have with Ag Steward. So we're grateful to have Dan Leahy with us here today. Dan is um, zooming in from Arizona. He is uh, kind of a traveler nowadays, right, Dan? You you give to see a lot of, lot of countries. Uh, sure. Um, so been on the road for um, almost two years now, graduated the last of five boys a couple of years ago. And uh, so it was time we hit the road and spend about roughly uh, one quarter of each year uh, on a host property with a client. Um, sometimes it's less, sometimes it's a little more, but um, that gives us a chance to really uh, get to know the client operations and contribute on a daily basis. So, uh, so far it works really well for us. Um, we're enjoying it and uh, hear good things from our clients. So that's kind of our, our schedule right now and um, don't have any immediate uh, plans to change. Um, some of those client situations are developing. So you just never know. Some, some, some of them might turn into more permanent uh, roles in the future. Well, good. Yeah, you had the opportunity to visit William and I last year, and we appreciated your visit. Appreciate your vast experience and um, and knowledge from managing and uh, consulting on ranches throughout the United States. Um, and so, as we as we kind of kick off here today, that's going to be the focus of what we're going to talk about here is about ranch management, and maybe you can talk a little bit about what what you do in your consultancy practice as well as um, kind of your ranch manager program. And uh, yeah, so just just kind of take it away and run with it. And then those of you that are here live, feel free to type in questions if you need questions and clarification, and I'll kind of facilitate that. And then at the end, we can open it up for a little more informal discussion. Sure. So the way I got started in this particular thing was not necessarily by accident, but I think it was serendipitous because 
um, having come off the, about six years of managing two different ranches, I realized I spent a lot of time, an inordinate amount of time, identifying and recruiting employees. And specifically, the, the top job on those ranches, because I was occupying the position, I, um, I, I undoubtedly had you know an extra burden when it came to replacing myself and leaving that person in charge. And so it just very naturally piqued my interest. And so a lot of windshield time thinking about it. And I thought, you know, uh, you know what could go wrong? I, I'm just going to study this. And, and, and so we started the Foundation for Ranch Management as a vehicle for this work, for this study, because I just was fascinated about how um, diluted our industry is naturally. Um, of course, technology has made you know all the difference in the world in the last three or four years, but um, it's the nature of the industry. We all work in remote places. Uh, we have our, lo our local um, uh, networks that we rely upon and contribute to, but even still, when it comes to hiring, it's kind of a catch-as-catch-can thing. Um, I would say, and these are just my own personal observations. They're not scientific in this regard. But I would say maybe up to half of hires are direct referrals, seems to me. Um, so somebody knows somebody who knows somebody. And then you have your your whole collection of online job boards that that sometimes work and sometimes don't. Most of the people listening are already familiar with them. I will say that those of you who know Jesse Jarvis up in Idaho and her uh, website of the West, I think is one of an excellent example of one of a new effort to add, you know, super valuable content all the while posting job ads. And she doesn't, focus on any one area in the Western uh, landscape, but, uh, but opens the door to everybody. And um, can you, can you repeat that website real quick, Dan? And that's when I'm not the name in the website I'm not familiar with. Right. It's spelled of the West dot co. And the M is not missing. It's, it's just a new, mm -hmm. uh, new space dot co. Okay. And then there was another quick question just to clarify. What do you mean by the industry being diluted? No, I, I guess what I meant to say was it seems diluted when you look at it on the face of it because everybody's so spread out. Okay. Everybody's spread out geographically. Everybody is beyond busy, you know, so on and so forth. And so it takes, it takes some work. And thank goodness we have technology because that's helping us everybody keep up and stay connected and just imagine what it was like when we had to go look for a telephone, right? We've all, all forgotten those days. So getting back quickly to finish my story, um, uh, we started the foundation, did a couple quick, pro quick projects and all of my work is, uh, by referral. I, I don't advertise. I don't even have a website. Um, and I'm not sure that I would have time for it if I did. So that that is working out just fine. Uh, just a, kind of a, a funny aside, when we were making arrangements to speak at uh, CattleCon in Orlando, the woman in charge of, of um, booking us there wanted to know if it was going to be a problem if, if we were presenting al along with uh, another ranch consulting company. And I had to kind of chuckle because there is no shortage of work in our business at all. It, it seems unlimited. So 
you know, the more people who can share their expertise, they're going to find an audience for it. And I would encourage anybody who feels like, you know, I've invested a lot in this. I feel, I feel like I've learned a couple of things and you can find a venue by all means, you should share it because we always think that our situation is different and nobody's interested in our little situation, but it's just not the case. Everybody's doing something interesting. So that's, that would be my, my two cents on that. Yeah, that's perfect. Um, well, good, good to get some context. And so with those that you consult with, would you say that, that largely they're committed to regenerative practices or are they more um, traditional, where where do you put yourself kind of on that continuum of regen ag versus just uh, profitable ag? Sure. And, and of course, that is where I always start is on the profitable side. And um, when we get to some of the, the tools that we use in the foundation, I can speak more to that. But, you know, I think, and, and this is not a slight at all, uh, but, you know, whether it's the word regenerative or organic or sustainable, you know, those words, those adjectives just get beaten around. And, and then one day that, that adjective is gone and has been replaced by a new one because too many people have co-opted it. And now it's time for, you know, to recast the message. But I think regenerative uh, will have more staying power. I think it will become known more deeply and I think it's because it's, it is tied to the soil. And, and so if we just say soil, then we don't have to worry about buzzwords anymore. We're back to basics. And, you know, it used to be grass, right? Grass was the bottom line. And thankfully, you know, we've, we've come to realize that we wouldn't have grass without soil, soil and we wouldn't have anything healthy without healthy soil. Right, William? Amen. Absolutely. All right. Yeah. So um, I bring up William's name. I'm glad to see, see who's on here. It's when uh, when we visited you about a year ago, I had a chance to sit in the greenhouse and visit for an uh, hour or more. And then I had a chance to bring William to a ranch in Wyoming. And, and so we've started that process on that ranch. Um, they have no soil. They have some bottom land, but it's, they have granite sand and that's it. So, you know, it's a very challenging uh, situation for them there. They get exactly the amount of grass uh, relative to the amount of nitrogen they put on the, on the ground. And so we're starting with the meadows and working our way up into the pivots and anxious to see what William can help us accomplish up there. Yeah, I appreciate that. What, um, I mean, hopefully this isn't a tangent, Maybe one more question, then we'll just kind of let you run with your presentation and what you have. But I'm always interested to to ask definitions of words. And how would you re- define regenerative? Uh, define it or redefine it? Um, define it from your from your perspective or your own definition of what does regenerative actually mean? Not the, not the buzzword, not the label, you know, in its pure form, I guess. Yeah. Well, we we should understand what the cycle of life looks like. And so, you know, with that basic knowledge and, and honestly, you know, a lot of people never get the requisite amount of chemistry. They never get the requisite amount of hydrology uh, and the things they need. And they tend to figure it out as they go, or they learn on the job. Um, But I think once that we 
we do have a complete picture of what the natural cycle is, then it's incumbent upon us to make sure that none of those components are compromised. And in my estimate, in my view, that's the basics right there. Um, you know, we can go back to this whole uh, use of nitrogen. That could be an example of it. You know, if you if you are dependent upon nitrogen uh, supplements and you have no intention of ever changing, you know, I would I would say that's that's maybe a functional way to proceed, but I don't know that it's regenerative because you're just ignoring components that that have been um, factored out of the nature cycle. So maybe that's overly simplistic, but works for me. That's good. I appreciate that. Like you said earlier, I tend to go very quickly to the profit issue, you know, after that. Yeah. Um, And I, I appreciate that. That was one of the focuses of the first summit that we did in 2023 and definitely an underlying uh, foundation for this last one that we did. And we do call this the profitable regeneration webinar series for a reason, because um, we can't be regenerative if we're not profitable, like was um, at least not at scale, right? Like we, it's one thing to regenerate your lawn or your garden. um, And, and by all means we should do that. Um, But to actually reach a tipping point whereby we are not in a soil loss situation, um, like we are in most of the um, industrialized countries in the world, we have to begin to adopt some of these regenerative practices that and and the principles that underlie them. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about um, or what what direction would you like to go from here? I guess you want to talk. I really, I, you know your audience better uh, than I I do, Jared. I I would just. I'm just happy responding to any cues that you might, might come to mind. Yeah. Well, so yes. And those that are live here, please feel free to continue to ask questions. We'll interject those. But um, another question that I like to ask, and I've asked this of Alan Williams and others that have been on this podcast, what, what are the principles that you see that are common amongst businesses that are proper, profitable and regenerative and have a team in place that likes to be there, there's the good work culture as well, right? Because I think all of those things are essential. Um, if you hate your job and you're not doing, you're not living your passion, you can be profitable and regenerative, but it's, it's, that's not sustainable either. So um, are there some key things that you focus in on or help your clients to achieve to be able to um, obtain all of those and some commonalities amongst those ranchers that have reached that? Well, one of the first things I do out of necessity would, um, when I arrive on a property is I do a, um, an enterprise assessment. So again, that's from my own knowledge. I need to understand the operation as quickly as possible, but in most cases, the owner hasn't done, or the manager, either one has not really done, uh, a true, uh, enterprise assessment. And one of the things that, that I try to stress with people is that, we tend to think of enterprises as things that make us money. But in, if you look at it on its face, an enterprise is anything that requires inputs and has an, some kind of expectation and outcome. So, you know, to be real, to real, real simplistic, you, some of these ranches spend a lot of money on road maintenance, right? 
They don't make any money. It helps them get around the ranch. It helps them get to market, whatever. There's Maybe there's a safety factor involved as well. But the fact of the matter is, it's an enterprise. And so you need to put that down regardless. And then once you have those all those enterprises um, uh, down, you can look at them. Then you can start making trade-offs because at the end of the day, every, everything's a trade-off. Uh, but if you don't see it as part of your total commitment, you're not in a position to make those trade-offs and assign value to those things accordingly. So that's in terms of uh, work, working with clients, that's where we almost always start. Because again, if you don't know where your money's going, where your energies are going, uh, you you can't make value decisions. And, and that is the first essential for progress. I think everybody has seen the value uh, triangle. If you imagine a triangle where you've got time on one axis and you've got cost on another, and then you've got quality on the third. The way, the way this theory goes is you can have two of those things, but you can rarely have all three. So that's the economic conditions that we live in on this earth. We live in under limits. And if we didn't, we wouldn't have value. So if you want something fast and cheap, quality is going to suffer. If you want it quality and, and, and um, inexpensively, it's going to take a long time. So it's another way I, you know, I try to explain to my clients the decision-making process and get them prepared for that. Yeah. So as you as you look at those enterprises, I know one of the ranching for profit principles is that um, many of the top performing businesses in ranching actually do less. Is that a common that you see as well? Like some of those things can be stopped without directly affecting the the gross income and net income. Like, I guess, can you speak to that a little bit? Yes. And, and to your point about scale, you know, scale is uh, all about faith. It's about study and judgment. But once you've done your study and made your judgments, it's a huge um, step of faith because you can't be, there's no middle ground there. If you're going to scale and that's your business model, then you have to leave your safety net behind and trust your model. Okay. A uh, couple things come to mind. Um, you know, wh- one of the things I learned from you, Jared, uh, when I was at your place last year is I think you said you only had like 28 head of cattle or 32 head of cattle. While I was only mildly surprised, I immediately realized what was happening. You're, you're focused on throughput and you're retailing your beef. So you're not going to carry any more head than you can retail. Right. So you understood your scale, even though it was a small number of, of cattle. Is that reasonably accurate? Right. And that's, that's cattle that we owned just before Christmas. We had about 2,400 head of cattle on the ranch. Right. But they were not, a, they, they were under management, but not ownership. Right. Right. And so, you know, when, when you, when you want, you look at your carrying capacity first, and then all those other things that, that cost you money to see where your profit, your break-even point is. But you're right. I will often say, look, you should not be doing your own farming. Okay. Your neighbor already owns this equipment. 
it's going to cost you half to have him come in here and farm this field for you than it is for you to keep the lease on this tractor. That, those types of trade-offs are every single day. And that, that goes to another part of our conversation where of communication on the ranch. You can't have those communicate. You can't get commitment from your people unless they're part of those decisions, because if they don't understand the reasoning behind those trade-offs, you don't have their heart, soul, and mind on the ranch. So I, I have a lot of clients who call me, you know, the counselor, the, and, and they're talking about marriage counseling, or they're talking about parent and child counseling. And I don't, none of us ever set out to do that, but it's unavoidable. So when you start making those trade-off decisions, you know, it's very important that everybody agrees to it, at least try it. Um, and then as you move forward, you don't have to worry so much about the communication breaking down amongst the team members. So, you know, whether it's farming out the road work, it's farming out the, the, the field farming itself, having more than one conversation right now with um, local co-ops, uh, co-ops between ranchers who are wrestling with the idea of whether they should bring in their own butcher and, and start their own processing plant. It's almost endless, but it, it's always driven by local circumstances. And no two ranches are the same. So that's why there's so much work involved in this assessment process. Yeah. So when you start that assessment process, you look at enterprises, um, any deadwood that needs to be cut out, enterprises that might need to be cut out or ones that can be scaled. What are, what are kind of the next things that you look at when you step foot on the ranch and meet the, meet the family or the um, team that you're consulting for? Well, one of the things that I'm concerned about before they are is try to get an idea of the longevity. You know, how much track do they have in front of them, regardless of what they've come through? Because that's going to dictate the investment in the ranch, um, not, in not only in terms of dollars, equipment, herd size, and that type of thing. But how much time and effort are you going to put into your people? Um, this is one of the things that you know, I'm going to be talking about in Orlando. The, the theme for NCBA this year is rebuilding the herd. And, you know, that's an interesting phrase because you, you can kind of take that in a number of different ways. You can talk about the cattle themselves. And I'm going to talk about rebuilding, you know, the seed stock in our, in our young managers. Um, ranches are changing hands at a faster rate than any time in history at higher prices than any, that at any time in history. And add to that, um, the majority of new owners are going to be investors, not ranchers. They may or may not become ranchers in this process, but there's going to be all kinds of different scenarios played out over the next 10 years. Uh, because you have owners uh, who have all these different um, motivations. Somebody said to me once, um, or I overheard the question, why would uh, an investor buyer choose to run cattle on the ranch that, that he purchased when he's otherwise been very successful at other things? And now he's looking at a business with less than 10% returns and a whole lot of risk. How could that possibly be attractive to that guy, that person? 
And I, what I would say by having worked with those people is that many of them understand the need for quality protein, period. And that's why they're doing it. So, you know, that's my first caution is don't look at with a jaundiced eye at these moneyed individuals who are buying generational ranches. Take each individual on their own merits and work with them. Because if you don't, you're going to end up with neighbors that you have no relationship with. Yeah, interesting. Um, so kind of on this, um, what's your, on your assessment, there's a, there's a question that might fit in here. Is there a sweet spot of cows to employee ratio? Well, I want to believe it's Burke Tykert's. I, that's what I want to believe, one to, one to 500 head. But circumstances, you know, impinge upon that sometimes. You know, you're 7,500 feet in, in Wyoming. Uh, that, that doesn't work. It's just, it's just too much work on the ground. There's too much pushing in the summer. There's too much, uh, you know, really arduous calving in the winter. Um, so that's a scenario that it, it doesn't work. And then again, it depends on how your ranch is set up. If you've got good fences and the gates are in the right places and you have contiguous pastures, you know, those types of things, maybe it will work out. How tame are your cattle? You know, all of that. Yeah. Figures in. Yeah. Another, you know, as another uh, rule of thumb is gross profit per employee is another way to be able to measure that. And, and so that might equalize things a little bit. Whereas some of us um, maybe who are direct marketing have less head but there's mm -hmm. more work and so that would skew the the head per employee ratio um, right so we tend to look more at that at kind of the gross profit um side of it but with when you traveled the country and every part of the country is unique has its advantages and challenges is there one part of the country that you feel like man this is just god's country and the best place to ranch and again, that that could be cow calf. We'll say we'll say to run a cow calf ranch. Yeah. If you could just say, man, I just this is the place that I would want to live, or for whatever reason, this is why this is, in your opinion, the place. Sure. And I, I real quickly, I'd like to comment on your first the first part of your sentence, and then I'll get to your answer. But the well, that is an aside. So I'm going to stick to your answer. Um, I. I focus on the cow-calf operation in the West, typically a smaller base, base ranch with public grazing, because it's a scenario that I think in, it's the most challenging scenario to work with. I think it has the most variables. And, you know, other people, you know, could disagree with me because they've had a different experience, but it just is different. You know, it's different than having you know, several thousand acres of Nebraska corn stalks um, or several thousand acres of Oklahoma grass. Uh, it's certainly different than Texas. I don't know what they eat down there, but they make do, you know, it, they find the right animals and, and, they, and they make it happen. So the, the base ranch uh, in the cow-calf operation, I think, has my attention just because it has so many different challenges to it. It's, it's and so you you have to, you have to make it all work, and 
uh, that's what I that we're drawn to. You know, our circuits basically Nevada, Oregon, Idaho, and Wyoming. So, a lot of desert, but also a lot of altitude too. Yeah, yeah, and that's you know I've definitely looked, and I know um, yeah I have friends that uh, buy and sell ranches, and we're definitely partial here to the west, but. I think a lot of that is because this is where we raised and this is our context of what we understand. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, so another question here from William. Um, do you think there are land managers who understand basic ecology enough to appeal to appeal to new landowners who are quote environmental extremists? Oh, good one. So I would say the only rule that I really have uh in, in terms of clients, and I, I do have the opportunity to pick and choose sometimes, but I can't work with a client, regardless of our differences, because we're going to have differences, but I can't work with a client where their first consideration is not the land. It, that is the basis for it. And we, what conversations would we have if we couldn't start there? Um, they wouldn't be very substantive. And I've worked on recreational ranches and left them because there wasn't enough emphasis. You know, big ranch in California that was largely under CRP. And for the owner, that was just fine. He thought it was, he was able to park, park his responsibilities in CRP. And it, that was 6,000 acres of star thistle. And I couldn't take it anymore. So I, you know, if that, if that's kind of what you're asking about, um, those owners are out there, but also your broker friends can probably tell you that the turnover with investors is, you know, three to 10 years. That's the majority of it. I mean, we'll, we'll see moving forward if that, if that changes, but they do turn those ranches pretty predictably. Yeah. That's, um, that's, that's interesting. So when you, when you find somebody whose primary focus isn't the land, would you say it's just more on um, the dollars they can get from the land, or is it uh, is it just owning it for recreation or whatever else? And it can be a whole you know combination of things. Is personality driven? Um, but I look like I said, I look for beyond personality. I look for fundamentals, and if they're telling me that the land is that important you know, then we can work on that. We can work on that for a long time without agreeing on anything else. There's only 24 hours in a day. And so I, I look at it that way. I'm going to focus on what I can make progress on and what I think is in the best interest of the property. Yeah. And you know, we often have very different views on politics and society and those types of things. Yeah, fair enough. Um, and to kind of answer Aliyah's questions uh, uh, here, what do cows eat here in Phoenix or in the desert areas? I mean, you definitely have to have a cow that's adapted to that place because you you take a cow from Nebraska and dump them out on the Nevada desert and they probably will starve to death. And you know what? Wow. And even a cow going from here to Nebraska, it's going to take some acclimation. But um, along with that, how important from your standpoint as a manager is having an adapted cow to the ranch? As, or as a, as a consultant or in a management position? Yeah. Well, 
So what I see is two, two, two things. I, first thing I see is tradition. Okay. So my dad ran Herefords. My granddad ran Herefords. His dad ran Herefords. So they're Hereford people. And so that's one end of the spectrum. And then the other end of the spectrum is, um, and Wyoming's another, again, a good example of this. You know, they have, they're dealing with brisket and other complex situations that they don't have a choice. They have to keep an eye on these selections every season because their circumstances are changing and it can go sideways really fast. So, so they're thinking about it all the time. Um, and they're trying to optimize those breeds for their circumstances and get an advantage at the same time. Yeah. And uh, that was a big topic from what we talked about last week on the summit when Steve Campbell talked about the profitable cow, having a cow that is acclimated to our environment, the right genotype, the right phenotype. And I know Bert Tigert's talked a lot about that and mm-hmm. um, kind of dispelled the myth that, you know, you can't afford to raise heifers. In some areas, you, you really probably can't afford not to, especially whether there's a pine needle abortion and things like that, where it's important that they um, are trained and and uh, the epigenetics are more critical in those situations. So I'll see if I can give justice here to Jessica's question. Um, she's asking what's more common, uh, generational ranchers that lack understanding of regenerative grazing practices and principles or brand new ranch owners who are not yet aware of regenerative practices? Sure. Um, it would be a, it'd be a cop out if I said they're equal, but there's examples on both sides. So, you know, the average ranch owner, uh, generational ranch owner is quickly approaching 70 years of age. They're not going to change. So if they, if they were fortunate enough to understand their property uh, as it was given to them and succeed with it, um, they're probably doing something right, right? I'll call it maybe call it an 80% solution, but they're maybe but they're maintaining and they're not making any ground. You know, William would look at their soil samples and say, "Yeah, you're not accomplishing anything here," and they would disagree because they they still get you know three bales of hay an acre and they think they're successful. With the new the new owners, uh, you're gonna you're also gonna have both. You're gonna have people who've been reading about it and studying it for years, and they finally own their own ground. So so they will they'll they'll pursue it from day one. Um, I have uh, one couple who he's Mr. Pragmatic and she is very idealistic. And, and he basically says, that's fine. You want to pursue soil health? Um, I'll support you. But what he doesn't say is I have no interest in soil health. You know, he's, he's a money's guy and he's looking at the dollar trade-off short-term dollar trade-off on with every decision. So, um, it really is where you find it. it and, um, and of course, the longer you, you get to work with these people, the more you can kind of sway them. You can, you can introduce ideas that over time. Situations will come up where your suggestions can be revisited and say, that's what I was talking about. And they go, oh, okay, now I get it. You know, I can take it, but we we're on a 12 month iterative cycle in this business. So everything happens one year at a time. 
Yeah, that, that's good. Hopefully, if you need other clarification on that, Jessica, feel free to raise your hand. We can unmute yet. Let's kind of shift towards the ranch manager side. And what I understand what you're trying to do, Dan, is to be able to fill that need between the ranch owners and building ranch managers that can step into that. And just out of curiosity, is anybody, I know on the summit, this question came up, you know, how do we get into ranch management? How do we, uh, how does a young person do that? Is anybody here on this um, recording today in that boat, like they would like to have the opportunity to be able to either be trained or mentored or move into a management position on a regenerative managed place? We've got one yes. Yeah, Jessica, very good. Um, so can you speak to that a little bit? Like what, um, what your program looks like that builds ranch managers? Sure. And the first thing I would say for, you know, people who are keenly interested in this, in, in regenerative practices at the same time as just trying to get established in the industry is always remember that you have your what and you have your how. Okay. We, we don't always get to work on both at the same time. So we have to understand that, you know, what I get to do today is the what right? I'm doing the basics. This is my entry. This is my permission to enter the industry. If I'm fortunate enough to arrive in the industry, then I'm, I have more time to work on the how. Okay. So, you know, just being aware of that is key because if you try to do everything at once and you all, everything all the time, uh, you'd be disappointed because life isn't that way. It's just not that neat. neat. You might have to go away for two years and get an education in just what the business of ranching is before you ever get a chance to work on, you know, uh, reestablishing a, a field or something that, that really turns your wheels, right? That, where you really feel like, okay, I'm working on the essence of this problem now. I'm on the ground. Well, I forget what the rancher's name was north of you, Jared, that did the podcast on the restoration of his bottomlands. Yeah, um, A.G. Smith. Yes, yes, yeah. See, yeah. so you look at you look at the quality of the work that those ladies were able to participate in on his ranch. They, they took a while for them to get that opportunity. Years of study and doing things that, you know, probably weren't all that inspiring. And then they get a chance to do a, a project like that. Yeah, so, that's that's. That's good. I know when Bud Williams came and visited us somewhere around 2007, Bud and Eunice spent the day with us and we, we got on the subject and I'm going to try to, with Eunice's permission, um, send that audio out as a podcast, edit it and send it out. Cause there were some real gems in there, but I asked, Bud, I said, how do you create branch managers? And uh, he said, first of all, you, uh, become a good ranch worker. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I, I think that's in looking kind of through your curriculum, there's, there's the education component, but there's the practical experience, um, that goes right along parallel with that. Am I right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's where colleges, um, not so much community colleges, I'll talk about them at another time, but this is where universities 
uh, really let us down. Not that there's not good people. Uh, you know, Rachel Frost and I become good friends and we've been able to help each other a lot. But the fact of the matter is those big um, four-year institutions, they have to fill seats, period. And so those curriculums, they may be no more than a 40% solution for somebody who really needs an education. Because if you, they don't have a choice. They're, they have to fill their seats. They have to work their curriculums. And it's, it's very uh, staff-centric, not student-centric. So having set, taken the, you know, the freedom to say that, there's so many other opportunities. And you know, we focus on the, the traditional apprenticeship. And I tell my young people all the time, I say, take charge of your apprenticeship. Quit looking for a job because a job is just a shot in the dark. And employment in the agriculture industry is very unsuccessful. The turnover is very high. Uh, drama and strife on the ranch is very high. And, and so you don't have a lot of support in those employment situations. You're out you know, uh, on a remote ranch with somebody that you uh, don't know yet. And so they're high-risk situations. And so my view is that if you understand, and we have materials to help young people with this, as well as the mentors as well, but if you understand what, the, what your goal is, where to arrive in 10 years as a master, then it does a tremendous amount to bridge all of the, the um, unfortunate situations you're going to have to go through along the way. It gives you perspective. And it keeps, it keeps you encouraged. It keeps you focused. And employers, many of them will acknowledge this. Some of them are seeing it for the first time. But when somebody comes, a young person comes along and they have a sense of who they are and where they're going, that employer has somebody they can work with. Because that person gets up and self-selects every day. And they're a joy to work with. And, and employers would give anything to have, you know, as many of those people as they can. Well, it starts with the young person and being self-aware and having a plan, having an apprenticeship where you're conscious of what you. So in, in we, we self-select in, in our self-assessment tool. The instructions read, rate yourself on each item as a one. I need to get started on this as a two. I can do this with some help or research or number three, I can do this and I can teach this. Now, if you have a list of 25 things, essential skills and, and, um, and abilities to function as a ranch manager, you need to be able to rate yourself accordingly on each of those things and be correct about it, be honest about it because how you present yourself is everything. And I, uh, I was talking the other day with Rec Ray Markser, uh, retired from the Matador, Matador Ranches uh, at Beaver Creek. And um, he said, I, we were talking about this very thing. And he goes, when I started at Beaver Creek, the average turnover was two and a half years. Once we instituted written roles and responsibilities and expectations and work agreements, our average employment went to 11 years. Yeah, that's kind of so, unheard of on a... It is, it is unheard of. Scale. 
but it was it just cool. a requisite uh, um, the minimum amount of structure in those relationships created an accountable environment where people could could get up every morning and feel like they were progressing and they were happy yeah that is so um, that is so important and my mind's kind of reeling here of all the directions we can go but so sticking sticking here with building the manager uh, and in our terms we call it the steward but if a young person wants it is an aspiring ranch manager they want to go and they want to um manage a place even if it's their own place what would that look like with working with you dan like where would you say they start and do you have branches where they can um, go through this apprenticeship on currently? Yes, so our registry is is still informal at this time. I don't have the the manpower right now to to formalize it the way you know. It's one of the reasons why I brought up um, Jesse Jarvis as an example. She, she she's got an excellent head for business, and she's putting structure in place for the long term. So she's been a really a good inspiration for me. And I can see where the foundation can develop down the road. But I can give you an example of it. Just yesterday, I heard from a young person in, in Eastern Oregon who I've been working with for three years. And he has a range ecology degree and would tell you that if he was starting over, that's not what he would have done. But we just don't know ourselves when we're 18 years old. And so that's what he did. He got a range ecology degree. And it didn't translate well to ranching because he still had a long list of skills that he did not have. So I started working with him. Um, he took a job with a, uh, a range management uh, bureau of sorts and kind of like an extension position. And so he, he was working, he was gainfully employed. He was providing for his family, but the desire to be in ranch management became stronger all the time. And so he gained confidence every three or four months. And we do an assessment. He was more in interested and determined to arrive than he was, than he was before. And so that's the first thing I was able to help him with is keep his perspective and be aware. Then he started using the self-assessment tools. He went to farrier, farrier school. He went to AI school um, and he took advantage of any opportunity he was out doing rangeland uh, surveys and meeting ranchers. And he would just ask, hey, can I come out this weekend and do it with you? So he never took his eye off the ball. And three years later, um, he, uh, he called a ranch in, um, in Eastern Oregon. Good friends of mine, owners from California who operate a ranch in um, Grant County, and got the assistant manager position there. So that's how it happens. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot there. That drive and that determination, I think, is is so key. Right. And um, I it pains me to think on both sides to hear that young people can say, I can never get started in ranching. And then for ranch owners to say, I can never find a good manager. Right. And, and I think it's just, yeah, maybe it is more challenging. I know this younger generation, maybe they lack some focus. Maybe they lack some of the skills that they have, but they have other skills that complement that. And so those who have the sincere desire 
Um, I say that, you know, the field is wide open. And I still think, um, again, back to Bud Williams, one of my mentors, he said, there are so many opportunities in ranching because it is so mismanaged. And so if we don't have to be perfect, we just have to have the desire and have to start and continue to learn just as you've, as you've spelled out here, Dan, and I appreciate that. Um, Another something on that um, vein is a couple of years ago, I was talking with Mark Lacey. Um, Mark's Lacey family is one of the foundational ranching families in central California. And <clears throat> Mark had just finished uh, a, a stint as manager or as president of uh, Ca- California Cattlemen's Association. And he was moving from there and going to California Rangeland Associate, Range Trust to take a board position. And he said, Dan, this is why I'm doing it. We started California Rangeland Trust and wasn't very long before our success caught up with us. Every time we put acres on our balance sheet, we create liability. And nobody had ever thought it in that, of that in those terms. Okay. So he was going over there to be a board member to work on this very problem. Um, when, when land goes into trust, it's monetized with no insurance assurance that that land's going to stay in production. I believe the key is young managers because those acres could be leased and those leases could be managed by rangeland trusts for the purpose of keeping them in the, in production because there is no shortage of NGOs out there who are going to purchase base ranches and allow the grazing rights to be sold off as well, along with the conservation easement on the base ranch. And and there's a whole industry out there is just circling, waiting for those public lands uh, acreages to, to come available, and they'll retire them. So what's going to what should stand in the gap of that? I believe just like what you said is we have to have owners and maybe those rangeland trusts that are operated by producers, such as California Rangeland Trust, Wyoming Stock Growers Rangeland Trust, Northwest Rangeland Trust, they have an opportunity to go to the owners and say, look, while we're putting this trust in place, let's agree that this ranch will always remain in production. And then let's put in some basic parameters that bring young people onto the land and allow them to ranch it. Yeah. That's, that's wide open. Nobody's doing doing that yet. And it's yeah. an opportunity that's staring us right in the face. Yeah. I like that. I think, man, that's worth having another conversation about Dan. And so as we kind of wrap up this official, the podcast side of it, well, I know there's some people with some questions and maybe we can unmute and do a little more informal here in a minute, but um, how do people get a hold of you, Dan? What's the best way to, to come in contact if they say, Hey, I've, either um, I'm interested in the ranch management, ranch manager training side, or in using your consultant services, what, sure. what's the way um, to reach you? One way is, is, is my email address. It's ranchresource at gmail.com. Okay. Easy enough. I'll put that in the chat. 
ranchresource at gmail.com. And so, yeah, I'd say definitely just reach out to them what your interest is. Um, and, uh, yeah, from visiting with you both in person and via email and text, very responsive and extremely knowledgeable about ranch management. Um, so we, we definitely appreciate having you on here today. We uh, want to make people aware that if you haven't already, I know a few of you have signed up for the two-day class that we have in um, February. It's 15th and 16th. I'm just going to drop this in the chat. The best way to find it, if you're just catching the audio, is events.agsteward.co. Events.agsteward.co. Not com, just co. And that'll that'll put you um, in charge. We've got that still open, a few seats available. Um, what this is, is basically we are looking for individuals who want to scale their ag enterprise. And so when we work with people one-on-one, we kind of have two different programs. We'll get you to 100K and we can take you and we can, that's the base level program. The second level is we will increase your gross income by 250K. 250,000. And this is just an introduction. We're going to distill those two programs down into two days. Obviously, there's not going to be a lot of handholding there in two days. There's going to be a lot of things that you'll need to do to go and implement that. Um, But if you want to get to those levels of either starting a business and reaching that benchmark or scaling a business that you currently have, we can help with that. I have no doubt you'll get there on your own. Like Dan said, if you've got the determination and the drive and the desire, you can get there. But perhaps you can get there faster with some help. And so that's the whole the whole idea with this program. Um, and the price still is, uh, it's $47, which is super reasonable. Question whether we should sell it at that price because it seems like, well, how good can it be for that price? Um, but as we prayerfully considered and consulted as a family and as a team, we decided that's the price we're going to offer it at, uh, this time, especially to those who have been on the summit and those who have supported the ag steward up to this point. So events.agsteward.co, um, we hope to see many of you in that you'll be getting an email with the bonus session that we had with Dave Pratt and then some other correspondence with a little bit of pre-work to be ready so you can just it is a plan on marking out the 15th and 16th those two days as what be time like time to really work on your business and it's uh it's even though it's virtual um i can promise you it is going to be interactive it's going to be engaging it's not just going to be a boring like oh wow what do i why am i here um if you're committed you will get uh exponentially like 10x results multiplier over what you invest not only in the monetary investment but in your time putting into that so hope to see many of you on that well thank you so much dan and thanks everybody for attending we're going to um we're going to have another guest here and you guys are on the email list so you'll find out who that is we've kind of booked out here through the first quarter got some great people that are going to be on and um this caliber people talking about the regenerative movement ranching and even um, some like we did on the summit. Sometimes we'll occasionally have somebody from outside the industry just to expand our perspective. So we hope to see you all next time and um, look for those of you who um, 
attended the summit. I'm going to shoot out a text right now with a special offer from our partners at Farm Rebel. Um, so if you get that, that's what that's about. Uh, that didn't get posted to the um, bonus page yet. So I wanted to make sure that people are aware of that because people have been asking. Um, we'll see you guys in a couple weeks. Dan, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on the Profitable Steward Podcast. Want to learn more about making your enterprise more profitable? Check out AgSteward on our website, www.agsteward.fyi. Here at AgSteward, we're working hard to make sure you have the latest tools and knowledge from the field of regenerative agriculture. Subscribe to our podcast to keep up with the latest info and help us spread the word by giving this video a thumbs up sharing this information with other farmers, and as always, please join the conversation by leaving us a rating and a review so we can help you to keep growing strong.